This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The White Castle of Carcosa. Sir Thomas Cochran. The Edwardianness of Ghost Stories. And Ummo. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But hold on, Robin, there was no crunch. That was more of a glumph or a glorp. I'm not even sure because that certainly wasn't Doritos. That was a, a cardboard box full of some kind of evil smelling disc of meat and onions and pickles. Robin, are we drunk? I'm not personally drunk, but I'm Canadian. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not drunk either. That explains why this looks so weird because it was brought to us by DoorDash Patreon backer Bob Greider who says, thinking of companies the yellow sign conspiracy might control in This Is Normal, now my eye turned to the city where I live. What could be more perfect than the gleaming headquarters of a massive chain entwined in society and pop culture with not only a regal theme but a strong color association that I could replace with yellow? So I ask, why would the Yellow King want to control the White Castle? Dun-dun-dun... And yes, the White Castle. Robin, you have, for your sins, delved into their mysteries, uh, besides right. the mystery of why you want them when you're drunk, but at no other time. <laughs> well, in fact, I am, I am tempted to thread jack this and skip the part where I promote my game, the Yellow King role-playing game available <laughs> from Pelgrane Press, and just go into a food hut digression where we discuss the role of kebab in Britain and Germany 
the role of White Castle in parts of America and how Canada has no equivalent. But I guess we got to work the, the Yellow King in there eventually. So if people want that food hut, be sure to request it. That's the right. Patreon backers. <laughs> the food hut on drunk food coming soon. So no as I've alluded to, White Castle does not exist here. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it doesn't exist in big parts of the U.S. And all attempts to grow it in other countries have ignominiously failed <laughs> for some uh, reason for some mysterious for some reason. reason so it's only a regional chain and it's like dotted in weird some might say arcane spots across the u.s and so ken i've never been to white castle i only know it as a landmark that tells me uh that uh, back in the olden days that i was approaching the convention center in uh indianapolis because there's one on the way in so ken have you been to a White Castle? Can oh, you, can you God, yes. explain this to the rest of the world who, who are currently puzzled? I did not grow up around a White Castle. White Castles are not in the Southwest or the South Central, really, or they weren't when I was a kid. Um, our drunk, terrible hamburger was a thing called Whataburger. And you can't ask for a fairer description of what that is than that. What? A burger? <laughs> and I will say that Whataburgers will win no awards anywhere, but they're... At least recognizably a hamburger. I have been to White Castles mostly while drunk. I've even gone on sort of an epic drunken ramble throughout Columbus, Ohio, that ended Harold and Kumar style at a White Castle apotheosis. Um, I've had White Castle delivered in some weird fashion, showed up at a party, and everyone ate it. But my White Castle associations are... Uh, with my putative adulthood, not my childhood. So I come to it entirely as America's liquor absorber. Yeah, it's, it's, it's legitimately not very good on any level, except. And, and the deal is they're, they're like slider size. Yeah, they're, they're sliders. They're tiny little hamburgers. And I say hamburgers because that's the closest thing. It's, you know, it's like, you know, the featherless biped is a human. This is a hamburger by that same vague definition of uh, pressed meat between buns, but it's a, it's yeah, they're little sliders. They usually come with onion and pickle and nothing else. Sometimes mustard. If you've got a mustard packet, Andy, they are salty as heck. They're fatty as heck. They are, as you say, the American equivalent of garbagey uh, currywurst or donor kebab in Germany. And they exist. And I, I assume their menu has hot dogs or chicken or some other thing. I think I, I drove past a White Castle once and they had a limited time White Castle rib sandwich or something like that. And it was just, or White Castle barbecue 99 cents was maybe what it said. It was some sort of end timey type thing that, of course, you know, flew right down my optic nerve and nestled itself like a parasite in my brain. But basically, to virtually every American who's been, I assume, drunk in the Midwest, it's sliders. It's boxes of sliders. The fries are adequate for American fast food fries. They're not legitimately terrible, but they're not. They're probably, you know, just objectively better than the sliders are. But again, no one would go out of their way to eat White Castle fries in the way that they do to eat Burger King fries, for example. So it's uh, it's just not a thing. But except, you know, when you're drunk, there's the king living in your head. Okay. So, so that's a description for those of us in the yeah. rest of the world. So in 1906, Upton Sinclair uh, writes a novel called uh, The Jungle, which is an expose of the meat packing plant. And for a couple of decades afterwards, nobody wants to eat ground beef. 
And there were eventually reforms, and uh, everything was fixed, and it's perfectly safe to eat ground beef in America again. Don't, don't think about that at all. Not a problem. Uh, but at any rate, in uh, the early 20s, in 26, is it, Ken? 21. 21. In 21, the entrepreneurs in Wichita, Kansas, decide to combat the fear of ground beef by emphasizing cleanliness. So the whole point of this is it's the whiteness is the white of the porcelain tiles, and uh, everything is clean and spick and span and stainless steel. And that spawns this chain that is still family owned, as we mentioned before, serves only parts of the U.S. And uh, this is really early for fast food. And uh, therefore, it is a big deal in and of itself and spawned countless imitators. So a lot of places would just take white and then slap the name of another building type onto it. So white dome or white fortress or white knight. Uh, are the ones that are particularly redolent for our purposes. Mm-hmm. Also, the Magic Castle. They did. There was a bunch of other uh, imitators that were at something castle. They were also innovators in prefab construction. They made these sort of porcelain buildings that they could just plunk down wherever. And I, I think there's something very kind of anodyne about this. So there is one film to go to for sort of fast consumer food horror, and that's Larry Cohen's The Stuff from the mm-hmm. mid-70s, uh, and you could definitely use that as the basis for something of, you know, this spreading burger chain with weirdly addictive uh, food that is uh, in- influencing people. And so that's, I think that writes itself, right? It's, it's basically, yeah. you know, it's the king in yellow, except instead of the play, it's hamburgers. The other question, I guess, would be, you know, what's what's mystical about Wichita, right? And so it could be that the king uh, at some point takes over the uh, chain in order to gain power over paranormal Wichita. And it's known for ghosts. Unusually, as we'll get to, a relatively landlocked place has some ghosts. Their Cowtown Museum is haunted, which I mentioned because cows, burgers, there's an obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, connection there. Uh, They have a phantom projectionist at their Orpheum Theater. That's, That's promising. The most exciting ghosts, however, in the area are uh, at McConnell Air Force Base, there's ghost planes, World War Ooh. II planes, insubstantial ones, periodically land at, at McConnell. And you know there's, you know, no fooling around about the paranormal or, or reports thereof around Air Force bases. They, they, they're they straight shooters. They're not going to tell you weird stuff about what's going on at the Air Force Base. No, they certainly won't get their radar um, uh, calibration wrong and then lie about it. That would be ridiculous. That would not be the Air Force way. The thing, though, is that I think the real reason that the King and Yellow would go after the White Castle chain and do so very obviously in a manner intended to misdirect the uh, player characters is to disguise the fact that, of course, there's another franchise. So White Castle makes about $720 million a year in revenue, has 377 locations. But there's another royal-themed burger chain. One might even say a Burger King uh, that makes over just around $2 billion a year in revenue, has just shy of 18,000 locations, is all around the world, already has a sort of goldeny color instead of a white color as their their hallmark. And uh, a creepy mascot. Exactly. A terrifying uh, mascot with a, a rictus of a mask, which presents itself ironically in its recent advertising campaign as if to... Uh, disarm you and make you fear him less. So clearly, I think the real thing is that the the king, uh, he needs walking around money. (laughs) So it may well be that he experiments with warping people's minds through White Castle, 
which is mostly in areas where people won't notice. But the real thing is just, uh, you know, having a big money-making corporation that he can make a, a lot of bucks with. and Because uh, he doesn't want to get you too comfortable with the idea of a masked king, because then his appearance doesn't shatter your mind. You don't want him to just show up and go, oh, look, it's the Burger King mascot. I guess he could rip that off and have the true pallid features. Yeah, the, the, when the Burger King mask comes off, there's nothing. That would be a, a thing right there. The thing, though, Robin, is that Burger King is headquartered in Miami, which is, you know, the most staid and boring town in America, really. <laughs> so I guess really, if we want to activate this into an actual scenario, is that the uh, agents of uh, Burger King are trying to prevent player characters from understanding that their faint to take control of White Castle is all just sort of a weird uh, misdirection operation. And uh, the real you do the whole scenario, the whole uh, scenario is, oh, no, what if Carcosa has entered White Castle and, you know, they you, they just kill themselves trying to prevent the pallid mask from, you know, extending and making a pallid castle and, and whatever else. And then at the end, you know, you've you've got the players all psyched up to be paranoid about White Castle and and they've they've, they've defeated the foe. They've driven off the the armies of Casilda or whoever's behind the sliders. You can't spell slider without Casilda. And uh, then they, you know, get in their cars, and they drive away. And I say, well, you deserve a fine meal after all that work of protecting America. How about stopping in at the Burger King? And then that's the punchline, really, is the sort of, oh, right, we've been fighting Casilda while Camilla's been over there running the Burger King and uh, making fat bank. Right. Or, or even the king himself. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the answer is that it's a, it's a big old misdirect with a great da-da-da-da surprise ending at the end. And once you get to the surprise ending, the only surprise is that there's another... Oh, that's not a surprise either. There's another segment on the other side of the commercial. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The History Hut unfolds today with uh, the Creek of masts 
the uh, wappling of wind on the canvas and, and a distinct smell of uh, sea salt in the air because beloved Patreon backer Dave Monroe uh, says, Sir Thomas Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald, seems like the sort of rogue who should fit into games. But how would one go about using this magnificent bastard? So this is the sailor and uh, stock market speculator who Napoleon dubbed the Sea Wolf. Yeah. His other nicknames were El Diablo and my favorite, and one that might suggest what his secret superpowers are, the Metallic Lord. If you look at the pictures, he looks kind of a bit like Tom Wilkinson, and he's kind of informed the two big classic fictional uh, sailors of this period. Uh, so he's uh, his career kind of gets into uh, C.S. Forrester's uh, Hornblower, uh, Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey. He appears in the Sharp series, and uh, the I, I understand the lesser continuers of Flashman have, have roped him in as well, Ken. Yeah, there's like a different Flashman who's in the Navy because the fun thing to do with military history is to have a coward at the center of it doing the narration, which was a great idea when George MacDonald Fraser came up with it, but has so far not been carried off particularly well by the shadowy Eidolons. Um, I got to say, you have to be super impressive as a naval man to appear in Sharp, because Sharp is... I, you know, on land and <laughs> that's quite a thing, but that's the way that Cochrane was. And to the extent he had a, uh, a military innovation, it was in being very combined arms uh, about sending his Marines in land force projection. Never. I mean, his theory was he's in a British warship. He's invulnerable. It's the land that's got to be scared and worried. And that was, uh, something that he did uh, a great deal, especially during the time that uh, he commanded in uh, the Mediterranean. And a lot of his exploits got, you know, lifted almost page for page, word for word, right into a hornblower. And so, um, you know, C.S. Forrester just is probably copying right out of the the, uh, the naval lists and the Gazette postings, just taking stuff that Cochrane did. And then, oh, Hornblower does it instead. Although Hornblower actually gets captured at a battle where Cochrane is the last guy out of the fort. So um, that's, you know, again, an, an interesting parallel there. Uh, anyway, the parallels are not exact. Uh, Hornblower is, of course, famously middle class. Sir Thomas Cochrane is the 10th Earl of Dundonald and not at all middle class. He grows up with huge amounts of influence. His uh, uncle is the Admiral of the Blue, Sir Alexander Cochrane. Uh, and so that's why from age of five, he is a false muster crewman, meaning he got paid, but he isn't on the boat. And uh, one assumes Sir Alexander. Later on, we call that a no-show job. Yeah, we call it a ghost payroll in Chicago. But uh, good old Sir Alexander probably pockets a, a chunk of the money and sends it on to keep Sir Thomas in uh, penny whistles and moon pies. But the family blows through all their money uh, because they're Scots nobles after Culloden. And uh, he is therefore forced to go get a real job. The war with France breaks out in 1793 and he joins the Navy as a midshipman and begins a career of fighting with both superiors and subordinates. Uh, he has his first court martial in 1798 for having a sassy mouth, but he is a uh, hero and therefore is promoted commander. While on Malta, he fights a duel with a royalist French officer, the only duel he fights in his career. Uh, he shoots the Frenchman and does not uh, suffer any injury. He then is not for that, but as <laughs> not not for that, is promoted uh, captain, uh, gets his own ship of the line, 
and then sails around uh, mostly in Mediterranean waters, capturing endless amounts of Spanish shipping. This is the period where Spain is forcibly allied to France, and uh, uh, he is harrying the French troops in Spain as well as the Spanish troops in Spain. During all of this, he is starting so many fights that someone says, you like fighting, you should run for parliament. And so he does. <laughs> uh, he runs in 1806 and loses. Then he runs in a uh, corrupt pocket borough and wins. He wins by bribing people, which is how you won parliament back in the day. Becomes a radical reformer. And people say, you're a, a radical reformer who bribed your way into parliament. Interesting. And and I am very intelligent. They come out of a well for some reason. Anyway, he then uh, says, fine. And he runs in a real constituency, wins that because again, hero. And so we, I assume he's been going back and forth between the Mediterranean and the hustings. Uh, although you didn't have to spend that much time on the hustings back in those days. But anyway, he's, you know, elected to parliament. Then his uh, sort of crowning act in 1809 is to get his commanding admiral court-martialed for his cowardice and incompetence, which is, I think, not the done thing. <laughs> it, it does cause other admirals to, to look at you suspiciously. Yes, like, but I want to command you, but I don't want that now. So uh, it, basically he was traducing him on the floor of parliament and the admiral uh, Gambier had to insist on a court-martial to clear his name because you can't be sued for what you say as a member of parliament. It's a loophole that uh, Cochrane, no doubt, ran through all the time. So now he's a hero. He's a knight. Uh, he's made a knight of the bath for his uh, uh, exploits. And, of course, he marries a hot orphan, 20 years younger than him. And so his rich uncle, who is, you know, uh, providing him the grease in his career, then disinherits him. That causes him, perhaps to uh, go along with what was called the, the Napoleon fraud, uh, because the fraud was that a guy uh, dressed in a red uniform was seen to tell someone else that Napoleon had died in Russia. And when that happened, stocks like rose crazily. And then a bunch of people sold out at the top of the rise, one of them being Sir Thomas Cochran. And then the stocks fell when it turned out that was a lie. And that guy was a Prussian uh, soldier who was hired uh, by some people. And uh, Cochran was tried because he was one of the six people who'd sold out at the top of the of the rise. Good old fashioned pump and dump. And he said, first of all, I don't know that guy. He was at your house. Well, I don't think he was in a red jacket in my house i think he was in a green jacket in my house that's why i don't know him and it was like that is the that is the weirdest alibi we've ever heard then he said no i told my my man of business just to sell the stock whenever it rose uh, over one percent because i i was suspicious of it and i wanted to get out at the top and if i'd been a conspirator i would have sold it at the actual top and made more money i would have doubled my money instead of making a mere what's now about five million dollars or i guess it's five million pounds in the in the deal this cuts no ice and butters no parsnips he is convicted of fraud he is dismissed from the navy his knighthood is stripped from him on the steps of parliament by order of uh or maybe on the steps of westminster abbey by the order of the prince regent uh, who hates him because prince regent thinks there's only room for one mouthy jerk in Britain, which has never been true. But if you're Prince Regent, you can try that. Uh, then Annie's thrown out of Parliament. And, of course, his constituents say he was railroaded and re-elect him, and he continues to serve until 1818, and at which point he takes a commission with the freedom fighters of Chile, who are uh, rising up against the Spanish. And he said, hmm, sailing around and shooting at Spaniards. That's, that's the old times. 
So he goes off to Chile, commands their navy against the Spanish, carries the expeditionary force of San Martin to Peru. So he liberates Peru while admiraling the Chilean navy. At the end of uh, Chile's war of independence, he uh, goes and commands the Brazilian navy, which is at that point rebelling against Portugal. And uh, that goes great. He basically bluffs the Portuguese navy into surrendering and then gets in a fight with his bosses about his money which is the same thing that happened in Chile, which is where he got the name the Metallic Lord because he was really interested in getting that gold. Well, you don't go lead another country's navy uh, just, you know, for hobby reasons. No, no, it's it, it's it's an avocation and a vocation. This time, rather than wait around for the revolutionary government to pay him, he says, oh, that's right, I have enormous ships and I'm in your largest port. Here's what I'll do. I'll just loot a bunch of Brazilian merchant ships and take all the money from the town uh, government building and we'll just call that good. And uh, the Brazilian government said, that is not good. You're under arrest. Come back to Rio de Janeiro for your court martial. And he says, or what I will do or is just. I, I could be on a boat. I'm on a boat. Uh, Look, I'm on a hijack boat. a different boat and sail to Britain with all my money and good luck. So he goes back to uh, Britain. And despite that being on his resume, the Greeks hire him to command their navy in the war against the Turks. Yes, we won't fall for the thing that the Brazilians <laughs> fell for. Cleverly, what they what they knew that he did not is they don't have any money. <laughs> There's nothing he can loot. So partially because of the Greek navy being grossly underfunded, he's not particularly able to make a big impact on the war, except that one of his subordinate officers accidentally starts the Battle of Navarino, which gets the British, French, and Russian fleets in to destroy the Ottoman fleet and wins Greece its independence from Turkey, which I guess was the mission, but Cochrane was in Albania when it happened, or Epirus, so yay, sort of. Anyway, that's over. The Greeks have no money. He goes back to Britain, becomes the 10th Earl Dundonald when his father dies, and then in 1832, with the death of the Prince Regent, he uh, is pardoned. He's reinstated Rear Admiral, and they say, great, take command. And he says, oh, I'm not going to take command until I get my knighthood back. And that's a whole nother thing. That takes a whole nother king, because apparently he, in the process, has angered King William. So Queen Victoria, when she comes to the throne, eventually returns his knighthood in 1847, and he goes off and uh, uh, commands the Caribbean station, just like Hornblower in his retirement, returns to full service. During the Crimean War, he is raring to go. He says, send me into the Baltic. I'll take the, the Russian fleet out. And someone looked at his record and says, he legitimately will do that, but we would like the Baltic to still not be on fire at the end of the war. So they said, thank you for your service. He then spends the rest of his life trying to get uh, steamships to be a thing. He was an early steam adopter, big fan. His Greek Navy had steam uh, paddle wheelers in it, something that many other ships, no ship at Navarino was a steamship except his tiny little Greek a flotilla that wasn't even at the battle that just started it, but it started it by sailing along and sinking nine Turkish gunboats with, without any answering shots being fired. So that sort of lets you know what's going to happen a, a little bit. And then sadly, you know, as we all must, uh, the body begins to fail. He starts getting the kidney stones and during a kidney stone operation at age 84, he dies full of honor and glory and uh, full of piss and vinegar. One assumes, especially full of piss uh, because it was a kidney stone. And uh, that was the end of the beloved Sir Thomas Cochrane, 
Earl of Dundonald, I think a guy that you would rather read about in the newspapers than have to serve with on a boat. And that's where the player characters come in. <laughs> exactly. Unless you're low <laughs> enough ranking that all you know is he's not going to get you into a stupid fight you will lose. He will get you into an amazing fight that you will win, in which case you love him to death. But I think junior officers, not a fan. Right. So, so the challenge here is not finding exciting things for him to get into, but rather the uh, eternal difficulty of having adventures happen within a command structure and how interesting is it to be uh, player characters on a boat in naval uh, combat. And so, of course, you know, this is a staple more so of the sort of pirate and swashbuckling uh, genre, because at least then you're all on a pirate ship and you might have more influence over what's going on. Uh, but there's no shortage of, of combat for him to get into. But, you know, this raises the question, you know, what, what does Sharp do to, to interact with him? How do we, you know, it seems really like the whole stock market thing might be a better basis for some sort of investigative scenario where there's, you know, something weird and supernatural going on. Then I guess you could have one, you know, scenario where they, they fight a, a, a ghost ship or something. But again, what is your freedom of, of action as player characters aboard? a vessel during a naval uh, conflict. Um, when I ran a pirate game a long time ago, one of the ways that I sort of got around this question was that taking a leaf from Tim Powers, voodoo was a thing. And so you could imagine a sort of Jonathan Norell type thing where there's magicians that are on Royal Navy ships and, or, you know, some kind of supernatural entities and they're their own little core, like the medical core. They're under the command of the captain, but they're not, uh, necessarily subject to constant discipline in the way that more normal Marines are. And so they've got a little bit of freedom of action. They can talk back to Cochran as long as they win. And then if they lose, then he's just, you know, a monster to them. But maybe that's the way to do it is, you know, you can still have your Napoleonic seafaring adventures. You're just, you know, you're not necessarily Marines, although you could play them as, as grogs, or you could have one character who's like the Marine liaison, whose job is to keep all of these uh, weird magicians alive, but you're doing things. You're working with Cochran as rough, not peers necessarily, because of course on the ship, he's the dictator, but you're at least able to talk back and able to uh, not be, you know, stripped to the waist and, uh, and lashed with a cat of nine tails every minute of the day, the way that a, a common sailor is, right? Right. I guess another landlubber adventure that you could bring him into is he would be, you know, your patron as he tries to get his knighthood back. And it could be, you could have some uh, intrigue around that, the, the secret reason why that's being withheld from him. And, you know, you have to go and find the information that he requires to go and, you know, grease the right wheels or block the right adversary or, or so forth. So there could be some sort of backroom plotting as well that, uh, that could happen again, because that would give you, you know, something to investigate and, and freedom of movement because, you know, unlike the uh, piracy angle where there's as many times when you go ashore to explore and get into fights on land, there's, there's uh, I, I would think that the, even the magical team aboard the ship, that's like one scenario. So I think we can maybe get like three scenarios out of him possibly. Or you could be the Brazilians uh, tasked to get their <laughs> to get their money back from him if he uh, loots their uh, ship. That could be a thing. Another possibility is you could be uh, freedom fighters in Peru or Brazil or Spain, or you could just be 
uh, sort of Kelly's heroes type uh, grognards in Napoleonic France, and you need to carry out some sort of mission, whether it's to rob a bank or, or loot a magical archive. And you're like, oh, what's going to distract all the soldiers? Oh, that crazy English my lord is out sailing around. If we can bring him here to launch one of his famous cutting out attacks or to sail up the river and bombard the shore like a crazy person, you don't have to work with him per se, but you have to get him, you know, to either trust your signals or to, you know, follow some lure that you lay out for him so that. Cochrane becomes a thing in the universe that you bring in, not a, uh, a necessarily a straight on NPC. Although you could, of course, you know, have the, the big meeting. He takes the long boat out under cover of night to meet with you in the secluded cove. That's a good time. But Cochrane can be more like a, you know, an airstrike that you call in from somewhere else as opposed to, um, you have to figure out how to do things. I mean, if on on a Cochrane boat, you are more likely to be sent ashore or sent into cutting out expeditions or sent to knock down a, a heliograph tower or something fun on land than you are with most British captains at the time, which is part of what made Cochrane such a holy terror in combat. And again, he did the same thing in Peru when he was fighting for Chile. Oh, so, so you could still be like his special forces. And yes, would, you're basically you your, a mission on the boat and then the adventure is on land. Yeah, you're his SAS type guys that, that or SBS, I guess it would be. You, you go out and you and you carry out special forces type ops for him. And then if you're sort of his pet Marines, that explains why he's not as god awful to you as he is to everybody else. Right, because he knows that you could pull on him what he pulled on the Brazilians. <laughs> yes, what he what he will in, inevitably pull on the Brazilians. Yeah, and you could play it either with a sort of a cynical, we're getting loot to give Cochrane, sort of like we're all looting the French together and oh, also fighting their Navy, sure. Uh, you could do it that way. That'd be kind of a fun game, I think, with a sort of a, you know, pirates with uniforms type attitude. Or it could be a, a more straightforward special forces, maybe with some covert magic going along. Uh, I, I can imagine many possible things. And if it's a looting thing, then maybe every now and again, you'll hear about some Greek tomb full of solid gold magic goodies. And he'll say, well, I've got a boat in the Mediterranean. Let's go loot it and not tell. And that can be a fun adventure. I feel like pirates with uniforms is it, it would be ridiculously unrealistic on any other ship. But Cochrane, who can say, right? He's he's a guy. And I don't want to traduce him and say that he's necessarily an awful crook. But he's certainly a fun-loving scallywag, whether he's, you know, a lord or not. Well, I think now that we've uh, finally uh, got a, uh, a whole campaign premise out of this, it's time <laughs> for us to uh, abandon ship, uh, get in some little boats, go across this river, and uh, see what waits on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Prevent this podcast from slidering into the abyss by joining such beloved Patreon backers as James Tatum, Thomas Edward, Rich Beenauer, Chris McLaren, and Adam Grotejohn. Looming shadows on the wall, the creak of the wainscoting, the scrape of hideous fingers along the wallpaper. We're in a dank Edwardian snug. I guess it's not dank. I guess it's snug. But nonetheless, it is the horror hut. Uh, once more, beloved Patreon backer Matthew Preston returns to the lists with the actual question that inspired last episode's question about the Christmas ghost story, because beloved Patreon backer Matthew Preston asks, It nearly being the start of December, my thoughts have turned to the ghost story that I need to write for my family's Christmas Eve reading. We've been doing this for many years, initially inspired by M.R. James's stories and how he used to read them out to students in Cambridge. We often discuss what makes the quintessential Victorian Edwardian ghost story distinct from both contemporary U.S. writers and later horror. Do you think this is just setting, or is there something distinct in the horror-dread spookiness of a classic ghost story? And how, <laughs> answering his own question correctly, do you think this could be played out at the gaming table? Uh, Robin, obviously we should say, start out by checking out uh, Paul Sinjin McIntosh's uh, Casting the Runes, a, a gumshoe game of playing M.R. James ghost stories. But... I think that you and I can maybe say a couple more things. Uh, again, I will begin by reiterating that M.R. James is the Mozart of the ghost story, that it has never been done better, will never be done better. Read M.R. James, and you will have a better answer to that question than even Robin and I can give you. Right. So so that's the first question. Is there an yeah. Edwardian ghost story tradition, or is it just M.R. James? Yeah. So, so there's a temporal element here, and uh, indeed, just a little bit earlier than James, Americans are writing ghost stories. In Poe, the ghosts are kind of there off in the corner or they're in a poem somewhere. They're create, you know, there's the idea that there might be a ghost is part of the deal. But in Poe, the danger is other people. They're the worst. But you have uh, a little later than that, you have Ambrose Bierce and Robert W. Chambers writing ghost stories. And often those are of the, I met someone on the street and had a conversation to them. And then I found out they were dead. It was a ghost. And that seems to be an indelible structure for little ghost stories that they both published a ton of. Uh, Bierce does some more elaborate ones that are more uh, effective. So there certainly are American ghosts and ghost stories. But by the time James is writing, American horror writing has taken a turn for toward the, the pulpy and more visceral and the sort of the both the coziness and, of course, the relatively unthreatening nature of what can an insubstantial ghost do to you other than prematurely age you or, or so forth uh, is uh, something that, you know, James is willing to tackle, but 
Americans at their typewriters uh, want somewhat sturdier threats. Um, there is a lot of American ghost stories, I will say, were written by women. Uh, Mary Wilkins Freeman, I think, is probably the big name, but there's scads of others. And they have been, I think, unfairly neglected. Now, I don't know that if you dig through them, and I've read a, a chunk of these ghost stories, they are good to great, but we are not missing the American lady M.R. James. We sadly did not produce that. But there is a lot of ghost story fiction being written. It just is not making its way into historiographies of horror. And also, the trouble is you write ghost stories before M.R. James. Even if you're Sheridan Lefanu, people say, well, Sheridan Lefanu was an important precursor to M.R. James. And then that's all they ever say about him. So James really does redefine the field when he writes it perfects it. There is an Edwardian tradition around him. He was at school with people who wrote ghost stories. A.F. Benson wrote ghost stories as a result of him. I think all the Bensons, there's like three literary Bensons. All of them wrote some ghost stories. Jerome K. Jerome wrote ghost stories. Lots of people in that era were writing them. It's just that James's ghosts were the, you know, the, the Elvis of ghost stories. And yeah, there were other rockabilly singers, but there's only one Elvis. M.R. James absolutely redefined the field, and then very rapidly, the field moved away from it because science fiction and scientific horror, uh, not least thanks to Lovecraft, kind of took over and drove the classic ghost story back into the rear view. Also, modernism does not like things that were before modernism and better than it. And so, once more, James is, is thought of as, as fusty and musty that um, his ghosts are non-threatening, which is not remotely true when you read a James ghost story. And, and certainly they're not immaterial. They're often horrible spiders. <laughs> so the, the Jamesian ghost story winds up sort of standing alone, both through its own genius and through rapid cultural changes afterward. And the question is, could you have a modern day Jamesian ghost story in a world where there's you know, internets and, um, uh, you know, ladies in pants and all the things that would have driven M.R. James into, you know, vapors, right? Right. And, and I think that the key to uh, being a ghost story country, there, there are two elements. One is dampness, <laughs> uh, that famously ghost sightings are more common in wet areas, so along shorelines and near lakes, mm -hmm. McConnell Air Force Base, uh, to the contrary. And the other thing that I, I think we're looking at here, the, the, element that has vanished that makes a ghost less scary is a rigid class system. Because the thing about a ghost is it is not in its place. Yeah. It is departed from the structure and organization of uh, people by, by being dead and by hanging around. And if you look at the other great source of a ghost story tradition, Japan, what do you have? You have an island, you have water, and you have a rigid class system. Where again, it is alarming if spirits are stepping outside of the normal rules and uh, uh, hanging around when they're supposed to go to their particular heaven that they're supposed to go to that you spend a lot of time making sure that they get to. And the idea that ghosts are scary is also found elsewhere in Asia, where, again, uh, they may or may not be close to water, but definitely uh, at the heyday of these beliefs, again, uh, there is an idea of uh, people need to be in their place, and when they're not, things go horribly, horribly awry. And that's, I think, the cultural scare of the ghost is that it is uh, wrecking the system. It's a, it's a disordered entity slash person in the wrong place. And that's their wrongness is a part of the problem. And so I think that has less resonance for Americans where all Americans are out of place 
at all times. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if a ghost wants to come through the veil, you know, it's like, it's Patrick Swayze. It's his perfect right to come through the veil, uh, because everybody can, you know, let it all hang out and go where they want and, uh, don't want to oppress the ghosts. And ghosts in America tradition, certainly post Amityville horror, but I would argue, you know, even before that, ghosts are almost more of a, a sign that uh, you and your doing things the way you want to do have made a wrong turn you can't undo. That ghosts in America are about insecurity. They're not about, oh my goodness, the servants are voting. They're about, oh no. I made a bad real estate decision. I made a bad real estate decision, which is virtually all haunted house movies now. I've done something that I can't take back that I, uh, that my vaunted American individuality and liberty got me into, and now I can't undo it because there's no social network around me. I can't trust anyone. I can't believe anyone. My family is possibly haunted, possibly dead, possibly missing. I don't have anyone to depend on except myself. That's scary and terrifying, and the ghosts therefore reify that. And that's why so many American ghosts are about insecurity, and I would argue that is one of the reasons that, uh, oh, goodness me, did I just say that the primary creator of American ghost stories were American women in the 19th century. Hmm. Who could have been less secure while still having the leisure to write ghost stories? Hmm. Well, look at that. Yeah. So I think that there is national character to ghost stories. German ghost stories, I think sort of combine a little of, of uh, the uh, English class consciousness with a, uh, a more sort of anything can kill you at any time. Fatalism. It's not so much insecurity, but it's like, yep, sure enough, ghosts showed up. Then we were all dead. So I feel like, yeah, you can't get a lot out of national ghost story culture. And I feel like a lot of the excitement and of, of visceral vibe of reading James does come from that sort of as an American in the 21st century, when you read James, you are already in an alien culture to a very large extent. And so some of it is I've just barely figured out how Oxford works. Now you're telling me something is breaking the rule that I just figured out. And so it's sort of a second order. I don't think it's the same visceral thrill that you got in 1906, but I feel like it is still more approachable, ironically, than a lot of American ghost stories that in theory are, are written about our same concerns. They're just written from a social milieu, milieu that is uh, very alien to us. Uh, right, because the, the contemporary haunted house movie is almost sort of more of a curse, right? That again, the, the ghosts are there and they're effectuating the curse, but it's like you've made a mistake with fortune and you, you've become luckless, mm -hmm. uh, which is the worst thing you can be in America as opposed to someone is out of place, which is the worst thing that can happen in uh, England or, or Japan. So I guess the meta answer is whatever ghost story you're telling is make sure you have that background cultural detail as part of it. And that part of the early investigation is not so much, you know, the, the players know a ghost is going to show up, but why are you spending so much time on the port passing ritual? Well, it's because we're establishing uh, all of the, uh, forces of order that may be utterly alien to you, depending on what part of the world you're from, uh, that you, you need to sort of create that idea. And again, is I think even more so now, uh, very much against, you know, the, the uh, culture of people to submit to the idea that, oh, no, oh yeah, you're just, some people are just better than other people because of the station they were born to. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you violate that, uh, that's a, that's a bad news, right? Of course, the 
I think people are going to want to play the ghosts who are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who are disrupting uh, that and coming in and uh, shaking up uh, people's hidebound notions. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the horror story is fundamentally uh, conservative or reactionary in that it is, as you say, about something breaking the rules and you have to stop it. And those may be God's rules, they may be society's rules, they may be whatever, but, you know, they're a thing from outside of a of, of chaotic force and you have to restore order. And that's the goal of a horror protagonist. And I, I feel like, you know, you need to paint order in positive tones to get player investment. And you also have to paint the breaking of that order in appalling tones to get people to not, as you say, sympathize for the ghosts. And the great thing about James is his ghosts are so horrendous that even if you sort of admit maybe they have a point, you still... You, you don't want any part of them. You know, the, the horrible thing in the, the uh, treasure of Abbott Thomas is, you know, it's a horrible thing. It, yeah. It, the guy should not have been digging around stealing treasure out of a French crypt. I get that. But, oh, you can't be rooting for the toad monster. That's even worse. So the goal is to provide that contrast, uh, that is the, the, the core element of horror while not turning it into giallo or something that isn't tonally correct. And that, of course, again, is something that James did perfectly. And you really get your best advice by seeing what James did, the specific repulsion of his ghosts, the specific problems that his characters have that seem understandable and relatable. I mean, like in Tractate Midoth, the guy just meets a nice girl on the train and then he gets dragged into this nightmare. So it's, uh, so, you know, there, there's elements that even James, who is a thousand percent on the side of the class system, is presenting to uh, make his protagonists understandable, even when, you know, or, or at least to make their opponents god awful. Because plenty of his uh, protagonists, as I say, you know, they, they make their own trouble. You don't pick up a Templar whistle and blow into it, for God's sake. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I guess that that is one thing that it, you could you know, contemporary progressivism is about establishing its current project is establishing a bunch of new taboos and the fear could be the fear of breaking those taboos, but I can't think of any group of progressively minded players who uh, wants anything less than an exploration in which those taboos are are broken. So on on the other hand, ghosts are like the ultimate unsafe space too. So they are, they're very, yes, there is that. Yeah. And I don't think that's something uh, people want to deal with. Yeah. Don't want to deal with it. Yeah, they have to uh, wait for uh, the modern day MR James to sublimate it in ghost fiction so that they can play it and not admit that that's what they're doing. Well, I guess the answer is uh, both yes, there is something distinct. Yes, you can do it at the table. Yes, it's very hard. Yes, be sure you want to do it before you do that uh, because haunted houses are great fun and, you know, Maybe you'll maybe you'll find a, a big bag of money in the basement. I don't know. Oh, I'm 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 fit in the horror hut now, Ken. So long that I'm scared. So I'm going to run out of this hut and see what other huts, perhaps less terrifying huts, await. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF 
Orient standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane IVN, Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohanneth Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, a hut that is sort of on the boundary of the crankish and the paranormal. We're not really sure where the boundaries are, except we know, oh, they're over in the corner, looking very excited this time around, because they know they're going to get mentioned in more than just the introduction. We have the gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're drinking their kombucha, and they're raising it to us in a toast-like gesture, because uh, this time around, Ken, we're going to talk about UMO. That's U-M-M-O, all in capital letters, and this was a hoax-slash-conspiracy-slash-cult that took Europe by storm in the mid-60s and uh, survived, or perhaps survives, a surprisingly long time, despite being utterly bonkers, or rather, should we say, because being utterly bonkers, because you don't get dopamine by believing in normal stuff. you got to believe in stuff that's right round the bend. And that brings us to Amo, that takes us to February in 1966, and it takes us to Madrid. Yeah. In uh, February of 1966, a sometime ufologist named Jose Luis Jordan Peña sees a strange saucer-shaped craft with a weird symbol on it. And the symbol looks, if you, if you think of an H and you bow the outside of the H out, the crossbar then extends and then you put a bar vertically down the middle of the H, that's what the symbol is. Uh, it looks a little bit like some of the old versions of uh, the symbol for the planet Uranus. It doesn't look like that much now, but uh, they, they they thought it was too umoey, I guess, and changed it. But the um, the weird symbol showed up, and then he mentions it to people, and sure enough, a different Spanish ufologist, a former UFO contactee who had previously gotten letters from aliens named Fernando Sesma Manzano, receives a letter from Amo, and they uh, say, hey... We're from Amo. We, we, they typed the letter. It's in yeah, Spanish. We, we bought an Underwood in order yep. to do this. It has uh, that Amo symbol that uh, Pena had seen on it to, you know, sort of as a guarantee of authenticity. And Sesma Manzano goes crazy, starts up a whole uh, thing. And uh, then in June of 1967, there is another sighting uh, that is reported from San Jose de Valeras, Spain. Photos of the saucer 
The landing is photographed where the UMO symbol is burned into the dirt by the landing feet of the thing. And then the letters uh, start a coming. And uh, as many as 1300 pages of UMO letters have been known to be received. Uh, the big wave comes from between 1966 and 1969. They are typed. They're usually in Spanish. They're received by ufologists and other people in the Spanish UFO scene. Um, and they're posted from Spain, but also from Australia, Canada, Switzerland, and Germany. So from all over the world, the UMOs are sending their letters. And it's, uh, it's a big deal. So Pena and the other recipients found a, a society called Eridani in 1970 to analyze and collate the letters. Uh, the letters then begin ratting out randos as CIA agents and say, you want to watch out for that guy? He's CIA. We know we're the UMOs. Right. Because being concerned about people, random people being CIA agents is, uh, unprecedented in the history of crackpot letters. Exactly. So anyway, UMO is a planet that orbits Wolf 424, a star about three and a half light years away, or three and a half parsecs away, rather. The Umites resemble humans, thanks to evolutionary convergence and <coughs> eugenics. Um, they have their own Jesus named Umawawa. They're Christian socialists, uh, or Umawawan socialists, I guess. They live in a social network, which is a fun thing to have dropping into your 1960s uh, typed alien letter. They came to Earth because they heard radio signals from Norway in 1930. Uh, they landed in France in 1950 and learned of our culture. Umites are among us now. As the letters went on, they later said that there was a sort of a mass abduction slash rapture that happened in 1987 called The Last Impression. The Umites say that they will invade or colonize or befriend us in 2033. <laughs> yeah, befriend. Let's call it let's befriend. Say, let's say befriend. And then in 1987 comes the first French UMO letter to a French ufologist. There's a later wave of those in 2003, 2009. There's a, another clout of them in 90s around the Gulf War. There is also, at this point, it has gotten out into the English-speaking UFO world, and people begin to have a Mandela effect of having seen uh, Jimi Hendrix wearing an UMO badge like a button with the UMO logo on it, but they can't find the picture, which is just a fun UMO fact. Anyway, the letters run as late as 2014. There are tweets from UMO accounts, 2012 to 2020. Not a lot of tweets, but more tweets than you would think. The content of the letters science-wise is what a smart science reader in 1966 could have puzzled out or guessed at it's nothing amazing except that so, they get so is there a literary continuity to these letters are they clearly all by the same writer or they, it, this... there's a continuity in the same way that there is a comic book continuity it's the same umo universe but occasionally they retcon things there are different umo voices over time but it is you know all from you know the umo verse if you will i do want to point out that they got the distance to their own star wrong uh, because apparently uh, in UMO hyperspace, it's the distance as measured in 1938, not the new distance that we know now. And they're very tart about that, if you point it out to them. Um, apparently, there was a way to write back to the UMO, because someone did that, and then they got a snotty response. So I don't know if you put it in a mailbox, or I don't know how it gets to it, but whatever. Um, so in 1991, uh, Jacques Vallée said, UMO is an obvious hoax, but he feels that it's uh, similar to Ukbar that it's a bunch of guys trying to write UMO into existence. In uh, 2002, a pseudonymous author who claimed to be a linguist named Jean Poyan claimed that the UMO language is uniquely functional, his word, uh, with 18 sans-septs, 
uh, that when you put them together, you don't need a dictionary. You just read the concepts and it will tell you what the word is. If you already know what the word so is, it's like alien whole word learning in 2004 Valley comes back with another theory, which is that he's looked at all the physics in it and he thinks it matches up with stuff that Sakharov was doing at the time and that it might've been the KGB that wrote the MO letters as coat trailing to find Sakharov stands overseas. And all this is great theories and very interesting. Good fun. There's a cult uh, called daughters of the MO that starts in 1969 in Bolivia uh, was still ran until about 2001, got very angry at people who wanted to find out about it. The woman who ran it, Florencia de Novi Gutierrez, was born Juana Portiavel, which is also the name on her mental institution records. So that's fun. You have a, a weird ummo cult in Bolivia. But as I say, we could speculate all day, except that in April of 1993, Jordan Pena said, oh, I made it up. It's a hoax. I did it on purpose. <laughs> And the only reason he did it is because one of the Ummo cults, I believe in Germany, he'd seen was branding the Ummo symbol onto people. And he said, all right, that's extreme. That's disgusting. Because he originally, you know, thought it's just a harmless joke. If you believe in Ummo and it makes your life better, great. He mostly did it, one assumes, because he was sick of hearing Sesma Manzano brag about all the letters he got from aliens and said, oh, I'll send you letters from aliens, pal. But it sort of began as a bit that he was playing on other Spanish ufologists. And then when it blew up to a global phenomenon, maybe Pena thinks it's getting out of hand. And, you know, he says, I made it up. It's a hoax. I did it. And what seems to have happened is everyone said, well, that's your opinion. And the yeah, MO letters kept it coming. <laughs> I've staked a lot of my identity on MO. Yep. Yeah. And of course, that's uh, any conspiracy theory can easily deflect uh, any contrary information. It just... The fact that he said it was a hoax proves that, proves that it's real. That's mm-hmm. conspiratorial thinking. That's not even one of You wouldn't trust that guy. He's an admitted hoaxer. Yes. So Amo was a gigantic deal in Spanish and French ufology, which is why Valley refers to it so many times. I like the theory that Mike Dash had that Pena also did it as a way of passing around anti-Francoist political thought, because the Amos spend a lot of time talking about what politics ought to look like which you couldn't do in Franco's Spain. But if you did it as crazy letters from aliens, who's going to, who's going to know who's going to stop you. And I, I, I like that theory that that's what it also began as was a way to troll uh, his buddy and also to get uh, some anti-Francoist yayas out to, you know, try and uh, speak your political mind in a, in a dictatorship. So I'm, I'm, I'm fun of those two theories, but I'm not mad at Jacques Vallée for guessing that the KGB did it. I think that's strong and guessing it, 11 years after Pena admitted to the hoax is just that that's chef's kiss jock Valley as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, and, and the Ukbar one is pretty sweet too. Yeah. So this spans a, a big period of time. Uh, if you, uh, this easily fits into the worldview of the Esoteris where a, a hoax turns real. Uh, so in that one, the, uh, you know, uh, various Esoteris can take over writing these letters and start, bending them in an increasing sinister direction and then you know okay let's let's we've reached the point where we can start branding people and we're gonna thin the membrane and the creatures that are gonna come in from the other side uh so that's that's rights itself territory that's mm-hmm. right in absolute keeping with the themes of that uh, setting and of course the early flowering of this in the mid-60s is right during a fall of delta green uh time so what how is amo interacting with the mythos are these uh, fungi from Yogoth who have Learned how to type. I mean, we know that the fungi from Yarath can type because 
they do in Whisper in Darkness. Uh, so typing is one of the Earth technologies that they've mastered. So, yeah, I would say you have typed letters from aliens. That is fungi territory. And I feel like it begins with, I mean, because the first Amo landing, according to them, was at the foot of the Alps down by the Mediterranean coast. So these are, you know, Pyrenean Migo uh, or Migo from mountains uh, in the central Spanish massif. They're in the Alps and they are sending their letters. And I want to say it's because there is a ongoing, maybe a NATO presence that's working against them or the brotherhood of the yellow sign is uh, after the, you know, as they're building up the yellow sign energy in Paris for the 68, the brotherhood is beginning to push the Migo around in their mountains. And so the Migo are basically trying to accelerate the program of mass abduction and uh, human tools in Spain and France, because this is like a local response to a local threat that the Migo are up to. And I do enjoy the notion that once this starts happening, you know, the, the Soviet anti-mythos group GRUSV8 gets into it and says, oh, we can, we can use this to winkle out mythos cultists in NATO. Let's do that. And so some of these letters are from uh, the GRU and that Delta Green, of course, NATO just wants everyone to shut down, to shut up and run the ground radar stations in Spain and keep France from completely turfing the, the alliance. And so it's really, I, I think it's find out where the letters come from is the adventure. And it turns out that they come from the global uh, Amigo cult. And uh, maybe the solution to you as the Delta Green guys is to use it as a back channel and try and find actionable Migo intelligence that you can use to go against them either in the Alps or uh, back in America. Like the, the, the ones in the Alps and the Pyrenees are using bad OPSEC and you can take that and then you can go after the Migo that are better hidden in say the, you know, San Grada Crisco, Cristo mountains or the Appalachians or wherever you've got American Migo besides Vermont. The, the Intel that they learn in France and Spain can then be applied back in America. Right. And, and, you know, when you run into them, they can say, don't worry, we're not going to befriend anybody until 2033. Well, not the whole population, but mm -hmm. would you like to step into the befriending machine? And uh, I think, uh, you know, at least one player character is going to step into the befriending machine, right? Yeah, they're they're, they're going to they're going to want to make a deal with the uh, with the ammo and, and say, yeah, let's let's meet. And obviously they're going to su suggest, how about this remote Alp? That'd be a good place to meet. Yeah. Because famously, Migo like humans. They like some parts of us better than others. I want to mm -hmm. save those and keep them around. But, uh, you know, that's that's Migo for you. Well, again, once uh, in the same way that uh, Delta Green is trying to use these letters to figure out the Migo strategy, the Migo are then using them to draw in smarter or more illuminated human investigators, because those are the guys whose brains you want to send out to the Magellanic Clouds. You don't want just some chump who's uh, going to believe a letter. You want someone who will uh, respond, you know, basically, if you think of the Ummo letters as the last starfighter, right? The goal is to get the best and most uh, UFO woke correspondent to then be, you know, kidnapped to Ummo, or in this case, have their brains sawn out, um, whatever it is, right? That that's the, that's the approach. It's, it's actually, it's a recruitment filter. It's like the Nigerian prince spam, it's looking for people so dumb that they'll keep doing it 
so it can cast but a wide net. skilled enough that they can keep finding the clues. Exactly, so right. This suggests like an elaborate theatrical operation where the Migo are leading people from step to step. And you might find that, oh, and another investigator, he was... He was shot at this point. He didn't get to keep going on. And, oh, mm-hmm. but another predecessor was looking at this, and he disappeared. We've really got to keep going further and further into the into the heart of this mystery. And the ones who show up, obviously, are pliable enough to be triggered by the MO letters, uh, but smart enough to get there. And that's the balance they want. Right? That's exactly the, the kind of thing that they want. And so the, the letters can wind up serving all kinds of uh, functional purposes for the Migo. They, they can multitask. And then in the campaign, you know, when your player characters are on an alp having their brains sawn out, you can say, well, you believed alien letters. What is wrong with you? You deserve this. <laughs> and you can also use this as like a, a grace note in another scenario, right? Is that uh, when the characters are uh, at a dead end, desperately need to be sent a clue, they get an Emma letter, which happens to just point them toward uh, one of the rivals to the Migo and in the intelligence right. world. And uh, there's helpful information in the letter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you might go, oh, maybe this is just the KGB giving us a, a tip that they couldn't give us through normal channels. Sure, fine. Okay, yeah. we'll go and do this. And then, uh, you know, that could then build up over a period of, you know, several scenarios. Because, of course, there's if they're posted from everywhere in the world and you start to get them, you could receive them anywhere. Yeah. So. And, 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 uh, one of the MO letters actually has like a photocopy of someone's driver's license that they ratted out as the CIA guy. So that's the sort of thing that you can be getting. You can be getting like actionable Intel that just happens to have you go after really, uh, high ranking, powerful members of the cult of the yellow sign. So that the, Migo don't have to deal with that guy. And uh, you could all lead it up to the point where you give yourselves as a gift uh, to the Migo in the mountains. And mentions of gifts uh, remind us that uh, today is the, uh, when you're first hearing this, if you're listening to it on the day that it drops, and you're probably not because you're busy, Mm -hmm. is the 24th of December. This is our uh, final episode for uh, 2021. If 2021 has taught us anything, it's to not say that the next year will be better. <laughs> You'd think we'd have learned that by now as a species and as a podcast. Yeah, but it has been another tough one. And uh, we uh, wish you all the best in whatever uh, holiday or, or family events that you're uh, uh, going to be celebrating. And uh, remember, uh, in these difficult times, to uh, remember your uh, love of gaming and tabletop and uh, creativity and uh, maybe even a Nordic alien and uh, and a gray alien. Oh, look, they're, they're raising eggnog. They're drinking eggnog. To those of you who will accept that toast. Because it's because of the holidays. They finally don't have to drink kombucha. Right. So our next episode will be back on uh, on the 7th. Often we take a two-week break, but the calendar is weird this year. So we're just going to take uh, one week off and be back on the 7th. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great holiday season, a great Yule period and you know we'll catch you on the flip side with different numbers in the year so that means a better one oh ken you did it ah! you weren't supposed to do that stuff i mean once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games program press ask for Gown, arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ward this podcast from the fusty attacks of Edwardian spirits by joining such intrepid backers as... Andrew Dacey. Volpine. Derek Yates. Taylor Harless. And Gwendolyn Schmidt. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch. 
at tpublic.com slash user slash KenRobin. With such cozy designs as excuse me while I nap this out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.